Are we ready? Are we ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Exciting Chromecast. This is Season 10, Episode 2. I'm Luke. I'm Josh. I'm Jonathan. And you are joining us for a discussion of Book 1, Dune, in the novel, Dune. That's confusing. We're talking about Dune. This is our (laughs) road to Arrakis. We've landed on this this desert planet, and tonight we're going to talk about the first third-ish of of that novel. I'm excited to talk about it. It's spicy. Yeah, it's spicy. It is. <laughs> it's hot. It's hot. But it's a dry heat. It's a dry heat. I hate it Un- when people say that. Unlike what we're experiencing here. Yeah. When, when people say, yeah, it's 125 in the shade, but it's a dry heat. <laughs> but what are you per- saying? Your perspiration can perspire. It's yeah. the heat stroke talk. You can, you, you can, lo- you can lose up, a, up to five liters of water a day just simply... In the shade, ah, Arrakis, but, but not with the still suit. You need your, you need your, your water johns, and you need a still suit, and you need a uh, still tent, and you need uh, that cool thing that uh, the like uh, arranges the sand so that you can get out of your your still tent. Dune yeah. is the world Dasani wants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. So we're going to talk some cool tech. We're going to talk some complicated plots. We're going to talk yep. about big, big dramas. We're going to talk about uh, big, big mood, big moods. <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, we're going to talk about super. Spider-Man? We're going to talk about supermen and Ubermensch and <laughs> eugenics. And we can even get into eugenics and arranged marriages and and uh, and doing a lot of drugs. It seems Obviously. like. <laughs> You do you you just accidentally do so many drugs when you're on the planet that you can't ever leave the planet. That's right. Yeah, to do so would kill you. It's it's big. It's big ideas. So we're talking about Dune. This is exciting, guys. Uh, before we get down the down the what the the wormhole, let's talk about what, we, <laughs> what we've been drinking. I I got dad jokes. <laughs> John, what are you drinking? I have some Kentucky Ale Kolsch style tonight. It comes in a very handsome blue labeled bottle. Super nice. Yeah, I do, like that blue. Do you know why it says Kolsch style? I don't. I guess like is Kentucky else, but it's Kolsch style. Is that what they're saying? I think that you can only actually make Kolsch beers in a specific restricted geography, kind of like uh, champagnes are all oh. from a specific region in a, France. A full flavored Kolsch style ale, true to form of the German beer style originating in Cologne. Yeah. So I think in order to be a true Kolsch, you have to originate from Cologne. And so I remember the, the lady telling us on a tour of the brewery that it's a Kolsch style, not a true Kolsch. My apologies to the people of Cologne then. No. I did not mean to appropriate their beer. <laughs> you, sh- you should just back up. <laughs> yeah. It's Kolsch it's style. Yeah. <laughs> Josh, what are you drinking? I've got a fat tire. It was a couple bucks off at Kroger. They're from Colorado. It has a picture of a bicycle on it. It's an amber ale. But and I think them, it's easy to drink. Tell them the sad news about why you had to buy a flat tire. Uh, I had to buy a fat tire because all the hams were gone at Kroger. Uh, and this has happened to me three times now. So here's a question. Yep. Last time I was at Kroger, I saw that the hams were no longer three ninety nine a six pack. They were four ninety nine a six pack. Which Kroger? Uh, this was at the 
the Tate's Creek Kroger. Oh, the Heartland Kroger. They're still the same price. Oh, yep. there you go. So if you want your your six pack of sixteen <laughs> ounces, <laughs> so that's for, why they're being they're all they're being bought out. It's like a it's like a fire I think, sale. Yeah, I think Ham should send the Chromecast some residuals. I think so too. Our, our friend uh, Noah Tipton recently posted something about Ham's beer the other day. He said, "Didn't he say I can't believe they still make this or something yeah, like that?" Yeah, it's the it's the cheap beer of choice. Nice. But, yeah, um, but I've got Fat Tire. It is, I think, measurably a better beer than yeah. Ham's. Well, what what are we going to call it? Pork soda summer is uh, it's coming to a close. We're <laughs> we're moving close, into yeah. we're moving into the 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 autumnal season. We're need, not quite there yet. Autumn tire. Yeah, <laughs> need a, need a darker beer. <laughs> I had uh, a Sam Adams Oktoberfest because they're already selling those things like hotcakes at Costco. So I was able to get a big box of those. Uh, I think I'm about to. To drink John's high life that he brought over. Uh, what else do we have? John's old bottle of Wild Turkey 101 is here. From, from uh, B&B last Which week. took a pounding. Yeah, we, yeah. Yeah, we <laughs> put a hurt on it. And there's an unlabeled uh, plain bottle of uh, uh, bourbon that has the green label Heaven Hill in it that we can get into, too. Nice. That's my that's my well. That's your well. That's my that's my reading well. <laughs> Do you both have some things fermenting right now? If I can make this part of drink minute on the show, I, Josh yeah. has got some some active fermentations, right? I, I do. I've got three gallons of mead going, and I've got five gallons of a of brown ale, the the caribou slobber from Northern Brewer. So all that stuff should be ready. Uh, the mead's probably closer to Christmas. Okay. Um, the longer we wait, the better they're going to be, and the beer should be ready to drink before Thanksgiving. I would think. Yeah, I, I have a uh, a sizer that's been ready to be bottled for at this point a while. Like it's been it's been clear for a month or or more. I've just been lazy and haven't done anything with it, so it's just ready to go into the bottles. And I was thinking about it over the weekend. I'm going to get a couple gallons of cider going because we're we're at about that point where it would be ready here in a couple months, which mm-hmm. is right on target for a little bit of Halloween. Festivities, yeah. So, my my plan is to do that. Nice. Thanks for sharing. Are you going to ferment anything now that you're in town? I don't we know. Can, I, we I can show you how to do this. Start. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you give me some pointers or something, yeah. like we could have a PowerPoint. We'll, we'll speak about it. <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll uh, convene off okay. mic. Yeah. Right. right on. That's what we're drinking. Let's go ahead and move over to our one things. This is the part of the show where we we talk about a thing that we've been jamming on, thinking on, just sort of digesting and ruminating on, aside from our main topic of the night. So I think we talked about going in a clockwise fashion with whoever the leader is. Maybe that was last episode. We're going to stick with it because I can keep on the, the, the train, keep the train running. So Josh, do you have your one thing ready? I do. I have one. Um. Lately, we've been watching a show on Netflix called Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. And this is a a show that's hosted by Jerry Seinfeld. And he uh, drives a different car on every episode and he picks up a different comedian and they go somewhere. And it seems like they they oscillate between New York and L.A., which which makes some sense. Right. Um, Because that's where these comedians are going to be. 
and they go grab some coffee and they just have a, a random conversation. And for the most part, it's about the, the comedy industry um, and what comedy is and that sort of thing. And they run about 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And uh, they, I think, showcase Seinfeld's humor in a way that I'm just not very familiar with with Seinfeld's non-sitcom comedy songs. Right, right. And I I think that this shows a different side of Jerry Seinfeld. It, it's often uh, non-sequitur. Sometimes it's very poignant. Sometimes they're very, like, spot-on uh, observations about the world. And other times mm-hmm. it's just like, man, I could not be in a room with this guy for more than five minutes because he, he's, he is just the the meanest and most bitter person I've ever heard. Uh, and so, but then he tells a joke and just wins you back. Right. Um, and so there was a good one where, um, uh, Seinfeld drives around. Uh, Oh, I can't think of the guy's name, but he ends up having uh, dinner with, with Mel Brooks and talking to Mel Brooks about, um, blazing saddles and the, just the brilliance of, of blazing saddles. Uh, and getting all of these big burly cowboy actors to do like a big dance number, right, right, in that movie, uh, it's it's just a it's a crack up, it's hysterical. So anyway, uh, it's it's not deep, it's it's certainly not you know uh, philosophical or anything like that. You're not going to find answers to life, the universe, and everything in it. But if you if you want to just unplug your mind for a little while and let someone make you laugh, check out comedians and cars getting coffee. Uh, there's a ton of episodes on Netflix right now. Awesome. Yeah, they just actually they just dropped a, a new season full of uh, of episodes. So there's a ton of them. I'm looking forward to checking out the one with Dave Chappelle. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. So that's mine. Cool. My turn. Johnny, take us in. Johnny, oh, Johnny, Johnny. Don't call, Johnny don't call me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm gonna go with. I've been reading. I went to the library and I found. That they had some hardcover versions of Fables by Bill Willingham and with art by Mark Buckingham for most of the issues. Right on. It's a yeah, it's a cool Vertigo imprint comic that came out a few years ago. Yeah, I think it concluded. Uh, oh, here it is uh, in the in 2015. So it's been done for a few years. I'm hoping to get the whole thing done. I'm doing some library reservations and having them yeah. delivered to the Tate's Creek version of the library. Nice. Um, it's a really cool, interesting concept where it's a comic book series that features fairy tales and folklore characters living in the real world, which sounds sort of like that one show that was on for a few years. <laughs> once Upon a Time. Uh, once yeah, Upon right. a Time. I think Once Upon a Time was heavily influenced by fables. I've, I've heard that there are some rumors of that. Uh, this is... It, I mean, it's interesting because it has... It's like a Max comic. It's got swear words and naked people in it. Um Bigby Wolf is the version of the big bad wolf in yeah, this, yeah. and he's pretty much Wolverine, I guess I would say, uh, that can turn into a giant wolf that can shoot wind out of his mouth. Um, Snow White is a main character. She's kind of like really in charge of Fable Town, even though she's not the duly elected leader. The, the runs that I've been through are called Legends in Exile, Animal Farm. There's a really cool issue called Bag of Bones, where Jack Horner is fighting in the American Civil War and finds a way to cheat death after he beats the devil at cards. And it was a really cool, well-done issue. So it's just a lot of cool stuff. Uh, the part that I just got to involved Bluebeard trying to kill Bigby Wolf and things don't go quite to plan for him. 
So it's cool. a lot of characters I recognize. It's some that I'm learning about. I like learning about folklore and stuff. And so I'm learning about some of these characters that I'd heard their name before, but I don't really know anything about, like Flycatcher um, and a few others. So if you're into folklore, I think, and you like comic books that are a mix of genres like murder mysteries and capers and stuff, I think you'd like Fables. So how does the thing start? There's like a mystery that needs to be solved, right? Yeah, so the first five issues are that uh, Rose Red, Red, Snow White's sister, has been murdered. Uh, They found her entire apartment doused in blood. Mm -hmm. And Bigby Wolf is supposed to help figure out what happened. And through a series of, you know, wackadoo events, I won't spoil it, but uh, things take an interesting turn. And he's supposed to reveal at a party and he gets to have his own sort of... uh, lounge room revelation okay. he has a, a term for it that he keeps using he's like really psyched about it he's apparently never gotten to solve a real crime <laughs> as the sheriff <laughs> of fables town of fable town and so he's pretty pumped about it but it's just re- it's a it's a really interesting series of comics and i was surprised uh i hear it's also sort of supposed to be based on israel like it's a story of israel no oh, really uh so i want to get to where i can start seeing those parallels being made uh but right now they're kind of building towards there's a bad guy called the adversary who took over the actual realm of the fables. And I think they're building towards him trying to come at them in the real world. The adversary is an interesting storyline. I I, I will heartily uh, second that one thing. Have you read the whole thing? I've read the first six or so trades. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, I like it. We'll have to compare notes. There's a video game. That's that is it's a video game adaptation of the first I think maybe it has elements of the first couple of trade paperbacks cool. in it called A Wolf Among Us. Okay. And you can download it on uh GOG.com. Oh, is that like is that the telltale? It's a telltale game. Yeah, game yeah, yeah, okay. I think I have heard of that. Yeah. So uh it's it's one of these like storyteller games where you it, it's a click and you choose your responses and you solve puzzles and stuff like that. So, is it canon? Like, is it part of? I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm going to look that up. But uh, every so often, uh, GOG has these incredible sales, right? right? So uh, just create an account, put that on your wish list, and, and wait until it goes on sale, and it'll, it'll email you cool. and say, hey, your wish list is on sale, and you can get it for a buck. <laughs> nice, dude. Yeah. How about you, Luke? So my one thing, I don't know if I've used this before, but I've been mainlining it over the past few nights. And it's the uh, Netflix show Mindhunter. Uh, I didn't know that season two was even happening or had happened, but my wife told me. She's like, hey, season two of Mindhunter's out. I said, oh, really? And so immediately that night I started watching season one again. And I haven't yet finished season one for the second time. But on the rewatch, I really, really, really like that show. Have you guys watched any of it? Nope. That, I think I've seen two episodes. That's uh that's another one that's on our list. Yeah. It's a uh, it's cool, man. It's you know, it's kind of it's kind of based on this biography or autobiography about like the origin of like serial killer science uh or serial killer like flavored forensics work uh and it gets at a couple FBI agents that are are coming up with these things as they go and they end up aligning themselves with uh, a psychology professor. And so, I don't know, it, the first couple episodes at least of the first season are directed by uh, Fincher and then I think similarly 
he's directing some in season two. I've stayed away from reading anything about season two. The only thing I know is that it's based on the, uh, the Atlanta child murders, which I don't know anything really about that sequence of events either. I just know that that's what the, the second season revolves around, but the first season is just, it's just killer. So there's, there's two, uh, there's two FBI agents that are, like traveling around there's a fellow that plays uh ed kemper who's a famous serial killer who is just just bonkers in a lot of ways but the guy that plays him in the show is just spot on and scary in his ability to to sort of be that character he's like the huge dude yeah right? uh, yeah and he was fairly smart but he's also uh I mean, he's just—he's he was a weird serial killer. The guy was just bon- just bonkers. There's, there's a you know, a handful of different serial killers. Like Richard Speck is in the first season. Uh, it's it's really good, and principally, I think it's good because of the back and forth between the two FBI agents. One of the guys, the main guy, who's kind of your initial focal character his name's holden ford he's he's not quite right and he just has like he's not dysfunctional he just lacks tact and lacks bedside manner and he's just enamored with these serial killers and he's he's weird in his own right so he's sort of your focal character but then also there's the guy who's the older fbi agent that sort of loops him into doing this traveling uh fbi show where they're meeting with different uh local law enforcement groups to talk about uh you know criminal psychology and that's kind of what opens the doors to some of these cases and then there's uh the psychology professor from uva that they meet up with and so those two characters are bouncing off of this kind of crazy central character and you've also got the girlfriend of the central character who's pursuing a master's degree and she's like you know, a social, a social sciences type character, uh, in the early seventies. And it's just, it's good. Like there's so many uncomfortable moments. I love how it plays off of the familiar tension that exists between the work-life balance and people that just get like absorbed in their work to where it becomes part of their identity. Uh, it's got a kick-ass soundtrack. It has a total like saturated color, scheme so it's very david fincher-esque mm-hmm. in a lot of ways it's pretty it's awesome it's a 70s period piece it's got badass music and it's about serial killers and it's really good that's my thing <laughs> it's a good thing i like it so mind hunter check it out on netflix when you said uh that you weren't aware that season two had dropped i never know when netflix adds new series um, and I don't know how you know. Like, it popped up on our feed, but, like, Liz, I think, had seen it, like, I don't know, on Facebook or something that day. She's like, oh, yeah, the season two came out. You like this show, right? I was like, what? Yeah, yeah. I, I I was kind of surprised that it got renewed and became that, that they made another season. So I don't no. know what the second season's even, like, how it's being evaluated or what kind of reviews it's getting. I'm not going to say that the show was, like so niche that I can't believe it got renewed, but it, it didn't necessarily cause quite a buzz when it first came out from what mm. I recall. Yeah, no, I, I don't know anything about it beyond what you've told us tonight. Uh, but what I was going to say is that I, I never know when Netflix adds new stuff. And did you guys know that they added uh, a, a revival of Rocco's modern life? 
I didn't. Mm-mm. Yeah. So are you familiar with that cartoon? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's it's an old Nickelodeon cartoon about a wallaby and his friend uh, Heifer, who's a cow who's been raised by wolves. And they have a turtle friend as well. And it's just this weird, surreal uh, cartoon. And evidently it's it's smart and it knows that it's a cartoon. And they know that they that it's been a while since they've been anywhere. Okay. Uh, and this just popped up on our Netflix the other day. Like, oh, you watched some cartoons on here before. <laughs> you might like this one. And I was like, Rocco's Modern Life? That's insane. So, I don't know. I was psyched about it. Netflix. Yeah, it's, it's funky how, I mean, Netflix really is... There's, there's so much material between that and, and Amazon and Hulu. There's so many things that pop up yeah. that it's hard to even, I don't know, stay abreast of that. Like, I, I watch TV, but holy moly, there's just, I can't, <laughs> I can't watch as much of we this We live stuff. in peak TV. Yeah. yeah. We're so at that point. It's cool. What we're saying is that uh, if anyone out there can explain this technology to us and tell us how you know when something's on Netflix, please help us. We're old and technology is hard. And automatically sort it too, so yeah, that you I want can to tell sort us like what's good, like what's the. Oh, I can't help you. With that. <laughs> and I, w- I want, I want my Xbox to stop playing the the trailers automatically. Right. I want, I want that to stop. Uprox has an article, I think, like each month that's called "What's Coming and Going from Netflix." See, you're you're one of the young people. <laughs> I think. You know, I think what's Uprox? It's a website about pop culture and entertainment and stuff. I haven't been to it in a while, but I remember them having an article. It seemed like every month that was like, this is what's going away, so you should watch it now, and next month, this is what's going to be hmm. dropping on each day. So, like, May 2nd, Daredevil season, whatever they got to, et cetera, et cetera. Liz has mentioned, I think there's an app, maybe it's called What's Next? I'm not for sure about that, but it basically, it allows you to search for a given thing like, like a, a movie or a show it will tell you where it's available oh so okay it, and where that, to stream it yeah yeah so if you if you are <laughs> if you are really wanting to look for you the know, man who would be king the man who would be king like that would be your your avenue to see where you might be able to get it. and i think it even because we've looked up some stuff i think it may even give you the prices too so you can see if google player or if amazon was cheaper i had to pay for that one on youtube oh man Chromecast problems. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And aren't you glad you paid for it, though? Yeah, I mean, I got to see Sean Connery doing stuff. Dude, and you're going to remember it just a little bit more. And and Michael Caine. (laughs) Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Hello, I'm Michael Caine. I'm going to move us out of this segment of the show now. This has been one thing. I feel like he would do the show. Michael Caine? If we ask him. Do you think we could like say, hey, we're going to talk about Get Carter. You want to talk about Get Carter with us? Or a swarm. It was a movie where I think he fought killer bees. Okay. Yeah. He's really proud of that one, I bet. Or Austin Powers 3. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, can, uh, we can get him, dude. He has a, a wide filmography. It's I true. bet he's itching to talk about some... Some lesser known things like the swarm. I mean, I bet he listens. Yeah, I bet he does. I bet he's psyched to talk, <laughs> hear us talk about Dune. Yeah. All right, let's talk about Dune. So, uh, my notes here what do you call this? A dramatis, 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 
personae, like where you just have a laundry list of all the uh-huh. characters mm-hmm. yeah. before you, you start watching the play so you can keep track of things. So were you guys both able to read through the entirety of book one? Yes, sir. Okay. So you first. didn't believe I would, did you? No, I You're no, giving me the stare down. No, that's not that's not true. Uh uh-uh. uh uh uh-uh. <laughs> But I, I just wanted to to see because this was a hefty reading challenge. This yeah, might this have been our heftiest reading challenge of, of anything to date. Like for, for Conan, a single the, episode. Yeah. yeah for yeah. Conan and the Conqueror, we divided that up into multiple episodes. Right. But that's a sh- like we read 200 pages of, of, of a novel for this. So we're yeah. going to be truncating and we're going to be covering ground. Yeah. Um, so where should we begin? Where, what, uh, what sounds good? How should we tackle this, this large section of uh, a literary masterpiece? So we've talked about how Dune came to be, yes, what his inspirations were. Yes. Talked about the publication history. Yes. So maybe instead of doing the plot first, there's a lot of people. The dramatis personae, good, I think, could be an interesting way to start the show. Okay. Yeah. So, so let's, let's, let's do that. Let's go big. Let's, let's start broad and kind of drill down. Okay. So who are the major factions within the, our story? The Atreides and the Harkonnens. Who are broadly part of something that's called like the Landsrad. Like, that's a term that's yeah. thrown out a couple times. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was going to call it the Imperium. That- and that's part of the Imperium. So, my impression is that you have all of these noble families that are part of the Landsrad, and they're kind of the counterpoint oh, okay, okay. to Shottam the Fourth, right? Right. So, they're like the greater houses. Yeah. Gotcha. <clears throat> and, and so, you have, <clears throat> as a counterpoint to the Landsrad the the emperor right, right? Mm-hmm. and it's not quite clear how the emperor came to power or if that's a thing that has always happened or if it's a case specific to this dude right is that is Isn't that he listed as the fourth he is the fourth right he, so, he is uh shadam the, the punishah emperor shadam the fourth yeah, yeah. So, so that he, seems it seems as though he is part of a dynasty yeah right and it seems as though that he's ruled for quite some time mm-hmm I was trying to figure out if it was a dynasty thing or if it's like a pope thing. Oh, maybe it is a pope thing. Or like they, they elect somebody to be, and he picked to be Shadam the Fourth. They yeah. go to a planet and everyone waits for the smoke right, to the smoke rise comes, yeah. into the, the upper troposphere. Presumably they burn spice to make the smoke. Of course, naturally. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So we have the Emperor, we have the Landsrad, most notably we have House Atreides, and what's the counterpoint there? Uh, you're going to make me say it? I'm okay. going to make somebody... John, what do you, how do you pronounce... House Harkonnen. I said Harkonnen as well, yeah. So we're following... That what you, that, that's what I say, too. Okay. okay. Uh, the, the other way you might say is like Harkonnen. Harkonnen. Yeah. But I like Harkonnen. Harkonnen sounds more rural, doesn't it? I think it sounds more menacing. Menacing? Harkonnen. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, Harkonnen. The harder, yeah, it's more guttural. Harkonnen sounds like your eighth grade you're English harkening. teacher. You're yeah. hearkening to them. Yeah. No. There's there's differences in terms of how the David Lynch Dune and how the Sci-Fi Channel Dune vary. So the Lynchian Dune, they say uh, Harkonnen, I think, mm, and then okay. the the Sci-Fi Channel they say Harkonnen. I haven't and seen that one. Whenever that came out, like I remember that came out, and I was I was in college at some point. I was like, I I never even thought to pronounce it that way, but maybe I don't know. Yeah, no, they're wrong. David Lynch is right, clearly. <laughs> So, we'll say we'll, we'll go with Harkonnen, but if you disagree, that's cool. Who are the the Harkonnens? They're like shadow players. They're crime bosses. 
they're not legitimately in charge of Arrakis, right? No, they have been. They, they have been, been, but like yeah. they've got a black market thing going on. They're the Lannisters, dude. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I don't know they what they are. That the means, Lannisters, okay. yeah, like they are. Well, they're they the are, mafia. Oh, yeah. the ma- yeah, they're a mafia. Their money, their power. the The leader of the family is the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, uh, and he has a couple nephews. Mm-hmm. He's got the Beast Robin, and then also it's it's only mentioned a couple times, I think, in the first book. But Fade Rautha right. is another character. Yeah, F- Fade Rautha. I think I'm I'm still not completely through the novel, but Fade Rautha comes into play more yeah. frequently toward the end because of. Plot elements that plot happen. Plot elements in the first that book. happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, is the dragon lady a Lannister? No, she she the dragon lady is. Uh, <laughs> hold on, I got to shift gears into my other property. Um, what is she? She's uh, Targaryen. Yeah, Daenerys Targaryen. She's a she's a dragon. So the incest people there. That's a that's the Lannisters. Those well, the Lannisters. historically the Targaryens were, but uh, the Lannisters kind of followed suit. Okay. Starting with Jamie and Cersei. Is oh, right, game, right. Is this the Game of Thrones podcast? No, now? I just, I wanted to make sure I knew what you meant. Okay. So, so we're sorry, gonna... <laughs> yeah, I got excited. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of funny to, to think about incest and secret family right. histories <laughs> and is. all of the common tropes that we now, you know, see in Game of Thrones. Love and enjoy. And enjoy. <laughs> well, it, it's fitting that you brought this up because as I was reading this, um, I kept saying to Ashley, like, this is. This has to be one of the major influences on George R. R. Martin for Game of Thrones. Okay. Like the political machinations between the noble houses and the power plays that they make are completely uh, Martinesque. Yeah. Okay. The, the feints within feints. Like yeah. playing a Game of Thrones and the way, like one of my favorite scenes in the whole first book is like the dinner scene. Yeah. Where yeah, yeah. There's you you basically get to see the uh, the statescraft of of Paul Atreides on display, and that's like sort of one level. But you get to to see those those back and forths across multiple factions because uh, Kynes is there in the room too, and he's kind of like secretly a power a source of power within things. Yeah, and he's a power like, broker. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's I'm getting all jittery. I, I, I love it, man. Like this, there's so many levels to to the coolness factor. So, uh, uh, so you we've got these two houses. So we talked about the Harkonnens. So what about the Atreides? They're of course our our, our protagonists for the story. Yeah, they're the other side of the co- the coin from the Harkonnens, right? They represent all that is noble, all that is uh, upfront, but they still are playing this game, right? They're still playing the 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 game of. I don't want to say Thrones, but like that's spice. Yeah. The game of spice. So the way that they're brought into this plot is that the Harkonnens have been removed from the planet Arrakis and the Atreides have been assigned uh, to be the, the new caretakers of Arrakis. Yep. Um, the importance of Arrakis briefly, and we'll probably come back to this is that this is the only place in the galaxy where the, the spice melange is produced. And the spice is used uh, in interstellar travel. You can't travel between worlds without uh, the spice, right? Yeah. And so this is kind of a big power move 
um, for the family, but they're going in knowing that they're going into shark infested waters. Right. Right. <clears throat> and then I guess the final thing between these two families, there's this, this consequence or this condition or this blood feud called Canley, K-A-N-L-E-Y or K-A-N-L-Y. I think it's L-Y. Uh, but it's basically like a, a vendetta, like a like the two houses are at organized opposition to one another and basically have permission to 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 have like up and up war with mm-hmm. one another. It seemed to me like a cold war yeah. because it seemed to me like the the Atreides family believed that the Harkonnens would not act against them. Uh, in terms of a full frontal assault, right? Um, they expected some some assassination attempts and things like that. Um, take them to the mattresses, <laughs> right? Um, so in the Atreides family, we have uh several players. Uh, Luke, you mentioned Paul. Let's come back to him. Uh, let's talk about the head of household here, the the Duke, who is the Family counterpoint Duke. to uh the Baron. So Duke Leto. Is that how you pronounce his name? Mm-hmm. I, I said Lido, but, Lido, okay. but that's you know whatever. It's all the same. I bet we can agree. We'll go back how and forth, we would probably. how we would pronounce the name of his concubine, Jessica, Lady Jessica. Okay, so, we, all, we all pronounce it Jessica. So Leto Je- Lido Jessica is, <laughs> is Oscar Isaacs in the new movie. I think that's right? correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep. That's interesting. That gives me a, a a visual for the guy. Yeah, and it seems like the dude they've uh, cast for. Uh, for Paul is young too. Like he was, I can't remember, but it, I think they have it age appropriate. I don't think we're gonna. Get well, it. I like that it's him because we get this whole thing about his dad was a, a matador, right? Oh yeah. So so uh, Paul's grandfather, right? right? Like the Duke's father. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think that Oscar Isaac has that Spanish flair. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. There's a lot of uh. All of the protagonists in this story of Dark Complexion, which is right. something we can come back to, which is okay. cool. So Lady Jessica, Leto, Leto, and Paul. Right. They're a nuclear family. Sort of. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's your father, your father's concubine. And you. And you. <laughs> There's a book about that. Uh, plus plus uh, Gurney, Thufer, you, and Duncan Idaho. Like, those are kind of the extra. Those are the other family Atreides. Yeah. Folks, right? I pronounced it Yui. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay. What did you say? I said you. Like I, I said like Doctor You, and uh, yeah, and for 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 Thufer, I said Thufer Hawat. Thufer Hawat. Yeah. Oh, okay. I said Thufir. I don't know. <laughs> I gave that it an accent. Nice. Yeah. So who's Gurn- who's Gurney? Gurney's the the blade master. That's right. Yeah. 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 So he's teaching Paul how to handle a sword and how to handle assassination attempts. And how to handle the... the oh, yeah. He plays a loot. mean guitar. Yeah. yeah. plays a mean guitar. And he's got a song ready for every occasion. Yeah. Thufir, or Thufir, he is the statescraft guy? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what is, what is his specific thing? What is he? He's a mintat. So what's a mintat, John? It's like a living computer. Why are there living computers in the story? Why don't they just power up their MacBook Pro and do their thing? They don't like computers. <sighs> this is true. Right? Yeah. Right. So this. There's a lot of talk about like what's a human and what's not a human. Yeah, man. There's differences between animals and humans and technology's bad. Right? Right. Like 
Well, even even humans and people, they make like a distinction. Am I, oh yeah, well I said animals. Yeah, right. yeah. So so humans as like as like animals and humans as like actual right like something more yeah something ascended from uh the the animal kingdom yeah yeah this is this is what i love like this is my 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 deepest enjoyment of this story like especially in this first like world building statement is how you get this opposition to technology in a science fictional universe uh in a lot of ways, but like an embracing of technology. And it's just, it's, it, I, I love it. Like, I think it's so cool to have essentially this medieval, uh, grand Game of Thrones style story, for lack of a better word, but basically a War of the Roses playing out across the far flung future and the far flung distances of space. But yet, it's as intimate as like flashing swords and that kind of stuff. Right. Swords still have a place in this. Yeah. Future. Yeah. Especially on Arrakis. Right. Dr. Yu, Yui is the family physician, mm-hmm. the Royal physician. Mm-hmm. And then Duncan Idaho is like a spy. He, I, he's like a munitions expert yeah. kind of guy, right? He, like he's kind of a catch all. He's, he's a ladies man. He's, if you need to woo the ladies, Duncan's your dude. Okay. That that comes up with, with how he uh is used, it seems like. He's currently hanging with the Fremen. Yeah. Which is another faction we'll have to talk we'll have about. To talk about. Yeah. 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 So What so, is the Harkonnen's Mintat's name? Oh. I said uh like Pitter? I said yeah, so Peter Pitter. Peter <laughs> DeVries, is that right? DeVries. P I T E R University. Yeah. I mean, is that right? Yeah. So, so, so Peter. Peter? I, I said Peter, but I don't know if. But he's like a faulty mintat. He's a a mintat who's hooked on the spice, and he's an assassin. That's the thing. He has cold, like, like great white shark eyes. Are they supposed eyes. to be assassins? The mintats, though, they're just supposed nope. to be like calculators, right? Because we don't use computers. So, so it's just a special training for your brain, so you're real good at math. Yeah. So we get a little bit of that, you know, with with Paul being shown that he has been subjected to the initial like Mintat training, right? Like it's not something he was aware of, but at some point whenever they reach that sort of like age of appreciation, it's revealed to them that, hey, you're being trained as a Mintat. Do you concede to keep doing it? Uh, the way that the Harkonnen Mintat plays out to me, it seems like he's like an amoral like he's a socio- he's a sociopath, right? Like he's a straight up chaotic neutral. He's, uh, he's chaotic evil. Yeah, I think. I mean, he is he chaotic. is evil, and it's he's fearsome, right? Like the way that he is sort of shown to be. It's a it's a counterpoint to how I think any other mintat operates because he's almost off his leash. Off his leash, it seems like. But he, am I wrong in saying that he's hooked on the spice? Like, don't doesn't the Baron say like he eats more mm-hmm. spice than anyone that yeah. he's ever seen? Yeah, he looks like he's from Arrakis because of because of that can because of that. Yeah, yeah, he seemed like a mantis to me. A mantis. Yeah, yeah. So I would, uh, 
I, w- I would like he's he he would be an uncomfortable person to be in the room with. <laughs> right. Yeah, like if I was next to a five foot tall mantis, I feel like I'd feel the same way around Peter. Peter. Peter Penner. Okay. Um. That everybody. I think we're covered. Yeah. Let's, so let's, so let's talk about the Fremen real quick. Okay. Did you say Fremen or Freeman? I said Fremen, but I assume it's a corruption of Freeman. I, I thought I said Fremen with the same thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's that's how it strikes me too. And so, in this first book, the main Fremen uh, or, or person that's associated with the Fremen that we get acquainted with is Kynes, and Kynes kind of straddles this allegiance, the, these different factions, right? He's the imperial planetary ecologist or planetologist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he also has kind of uh what's the word gone native that's what they say yeah he's he is uh he's joined more or less the the fremen he believes what they believe right drink kool-aid yep spice aid yep (laughs) the spice beers okay the pumpkin spice lattes so can we focus in on any of it i would be great i mean i think we can so let's move past the fremen i mean we're going to come back to them so so the other main factions i think that we need to talk about are the spacing guild which we've alluded to okay maybe chom c-h-o-a-m which is kind of (laughs) not as central and then the bitty jesuit and the bitty jesuit is the main thing to talk about here before we kind of get into our main points yeah so so what is that group about I described them to Ashley as magical space nuns. Yeah. But they are um, this sort of continuation of some sort of religion for the people in outer space. And they are also secretly conducting these uh, genetic experiments in order to breed the first male Bene Gesserit. And they are also planting these different seeds of their legendarium in various planets, specifically Arrakis, uh, in order to potentially benefit some future Bene Gesserit who might find herself stranded there. Nailed it. Pretty much. Yeah. They have certain powers. Uh, they're, they're trained in, uh, combat, which we don't really see in this first section of the novel. And they also are able to use a skill called the voice, which being a fan of Skyrim, like I expected them to shout and blast people away from them. (laughs) Uh, But they can uh, suggest that other people do something and the other people are compelled to do it. Right. Super ventriloquism. Yeah. She can tell you to sit and you'll sit if, if you are predisposed to the voice. Yeah. The way that I read it, it's almost... A level of super observation they're able like there's there's references in the first book to both paul and jessica listening to somebody's speech patterns and observing mm-hmm. their mannerisms such that they they kind of like capture their their cadence and their archetype and they know they, how to play to that they profile them yeah and they're able to uh manipulate that right so the way that it strikes me is it's not magical it's very much a a a nuanced understanding of like the 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 psychology of a person and they 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 know 
how to deliver both the emotional and and like literal impacts to have to have like voice control like they're able to to do that they're also able to as they as they sort of describe it truth say so so read uh like not necessarily mind read but just be a super like lie detector and be able to do all of those things they have a highly attuned female brain <laughs> to get to get into sort of the 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 left brain right brained uh male female themes of the book like the the Benny Jesuit are like witchy women they're 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 master manipulators they're they're they they tend to do things through subterfuge and they they know how to manipulate the world and that's what they're doing yeah but uh i guess the point i was trying to make is that they are gifted with some it's not really mystical i guess but some power yeah. that that goes above and beyond the the story's ability to explain it I would like to look. Are you in. saying they're magical? Like you really, truly like? Is that your interpretation of it? That's my interpretation of it. Is that they 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 have tapped into some? I mean, whether it's hypnotism or not, you know, I don't I, I don't know, but I don't perceive it to be right. We we have a scene where Jessica is able to force. Um, I can't remember who it is. Is it through fear? Yeah, to sit down to sit down mm-hmm. against his will. Mm-hmm. There's a scene in the in the beginning where the the old uh, Benny Gesserit, uh, uh, matron is able to tell Paul that, you know, she's going to tell him some truths about what's going to happen on Arrakis and he is not going to be able to tell those truths to anyone else. So to me, it operates kind of like magic, kind of like sorcery, you might mm-hmm. say. Sure. Right on. I mean, so I, the way that I have always interpreted it was like some level of like super science right like it's not uh supernatural it's like supernatural or whatever it's the kind of thing where we just like the Bene jesuit understand the 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 mystic arts behind it all but it is uh explainable on the basis of of uh just the way that people are wired kind of thing I guess, I guess my thought on it is that if it is explainable, it isn't explained, uh-huh. and it operates in a similar way to um, magic in Harry Potter. Some people can, some people, most people can't. Some people can do it, uh, or the Force in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Some people are attuned to it; other people are not. And the people who are able to use it can use it to mani- manipulate those who can't exactly these are not the droids you're looking for yeah so some people are some people are humans like some people are 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 next level and some people are animals sure and and i guess that whether it's magic or not is semantics to me yeah i i agree i mean i think that's why it's beautiful is it it straddles the line of like making uh uh the discussion of of magic versus uh understand it like it's it's within the grasp of these women and they've harnessed whatever this power is 
similar to however like the spacing guild is doing what they yeah. do too yeah so let's talk about the spacing guild they've they've harnessed some aspect of uh arrakis here uh specifically the spice how do they leverage the spice like what's their role in this whole thing mm, they need the spice to travel across the stars traveling across the stars is what allows the the entirety of of humankind to persist there's like this balance that's that's currently in existence and seems to be for some time like like the the ultimately the spacing guild is like they are a power in and of themselves like they don't necessarily have the ability to enact their will on either the landsrad or the uh emperor but they they're the ones that can say well we're just not going to take you to a place and yeah. if that doesn't happen then like like they have veto power like all of these groups function in the way that you you would see like a a multi-headed government function where there's veto power checks and balances all around but which is it, pretty cool it, so this drives the point home that whoever controls the spice controls the universe we have all these various factions within the the story the main ones i would say are the the Bene Gesserit, the harkonnens and the atreides and for book one specifically uh those three factions are the the major ones let's talk about arrakis itself because i i it it seems to me to be a character for sure in the story just as much as anyone else. It's a desert planet. It's a hard place to live for sure. There sounds like there's dust storms aplenty. Um, there's ferocious wildlife in the form of the worms that you kind of have to plan everything that you do work-wise around. There's a lot of specialized equipment that mm-hmm. makes the excavation of the spice possible. And there are a hard and lean group of people that live there and do all the work for whatever house is in charge. Yeah. Moisture is at a premium. And so it's like change the way they have their culture. The one part that I think of in my mind is when they meet with one of the Fremen leaders and he spits on a table and it's a sign of respect because he voluntarily gave up some of his body's moisture. And we hear stories about how moisture is reclaimed from anybody that dies and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's a harsh, dry place. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the worms. They are the notable life on the planet outside of the the people that inhabit it. Yeah. So I guess what I would like to hear from both of you maybe is, I know that you both have a bigger ecology background than I do, but there's a lot of talk, it seems at certain points, about actual terrestrial animals. Are they loose on Arrakis or is the only wildlife present the worms and are the worms implied to have been present on the planet before humankind or are the worms some sort of evolutionary leap for something we release during terraforming? Like, that's, can you help good, me wrap my mind around what this wildlife is? This is a good question. Uh, so far in book one, uh, during the dinner scene, we get from kinds, this explanation that there are birds of prey, right? Like right. They're, they, they, well, not really birds of prey, even they're carrion birds, carrion birds. Um, but it's not clear what those carrion birds eat. And it's also not clear on how they evolved on the planet or right. if they are even native to the planet to begin with. Right. 
and we we get the word muadib multiple times, which right. isn't that a mouse of it's, some it's kind? It's a type of mouse that inhabits the desert. Yeah, uh, but it's a kangaroo mouse, which is real. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So did we let them loose on a racket? Like, is this? That's a, that is, these are good questions okay. that we so don't we don't know. Have, we don't yet have the answer okay. to them. What, what's your impression, uh, given what where we are in the book of of John's question, Luke? My interpretation of things is that uh, this story happens in an era far beyond present day. So the sentient life that's found all across various solar systems, it's human, right? Like we seeded the stars and what we see here is that. And as a consequence, like I think that we are the explanation for kangaroo uh, rats roaming Arrakis. So, and, like, we showed up, we let some annelids loose, and they turned into the I, I don't know. I, I mean, the worms are something different. I think okay. the worms and are you'll, something You'll find out, like, more, but still not enough. Like, uh, the whole worminess of Arrakis is unique, and the creation of Spice is unique, and the relationship between the the little maker versus the the big maker it's it's not it, like i've only read the first uh frank herbert work so i don't have the fuller like series context for for what the worm ecology of arrakis is but just working off of what's in this book and what's in the glossary it's hard to disentangle the relationships between worms and the like obligate fungi and things that play out. Okay. Like we'll get, we'll get into that, but like, so I don't know the story of the worms, but you're right. Like Muad'Dib is a reference to the, a, a native mouse that lives on the planet. It's also a reference to their, their equivalent of Ursa major or Polaris, right? Like the, mm-hmm. it's, it's the, it's a, a sign, like a constellation right. that points towards their North star. Uh, yeah, it is recognizable. Like, this world, aside from being a desert planet with a desert ecology, it doesn't have, like, aliens roaming around. Right. Right. I just wanted to make sure that I grasped kind of what had happened. It's Because it's like I mean, 20,000 years in the future-ish, right? Yeah. And that's not really enough for a nightcrawler to have turned into a sandworm. Right. But it is enough for me to believe that we could have taken mice to Arrakis and they turned into rats mm-hmm. that turned into constellations for, and it their- could have been accidental, like not intentional. Right. 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 There's, there's lots of instances of people moving animals around unintentionally with yes. consequences of, of uh, greater or lesser <laughs> ecological significance. Right. <laughs> rats in particular. Right. <laughs> uh, okay. I feel I feel good about that. Then. But there, there is a lot of cool ecology in this story, and it gets even cooler in, in book two. Okay. But here we get a sense during the, the dinner scene of desert adaptations, right? Of the, the, uh, the birds that take one another's blood because your blood is your water, essentially. And the Fremen have built their society around this biological constraint, that 
the water that belongs to a person within the tribe or the siege, is that mm-hmm. the right word? Yeah. Um, belongs to everyone. And that brings the bond of the the group together in a more cohesive way than it could otherwise be, right? Like, you know that if I die, my blood is yours, my water is yours, and, and likewise, yours is mine. Um, and that is, I think a really cool aspect of the Fremen that makes them uh, unique in, in the story of, of various peoples. Yeah. Even more interesting is the fact that the Atreides family comes from a planet that is dominated by water, right? They're water people and kinds uh, who is the, the planetary ecologist makes mention of that several times. Like you look soft, you right. look weak, you got you, water, you flesh. got water in you. Yeah. Like, and they come to this desert planet where water is life and without it, you're a goner. Um, I think there's some pr- probably some deeper theme there that I'm missing, uh, but just surface level thoughts like that is a cool aspect of the story to me is we have these desert people and these water people and the way that they work is pretty different. I was surprised to see that we didn't get any sort of, human adaptations like instead we have these still suits that they wear it's tools right it's technological adaptations yeah like i kept waiting to see like oh iraqians iraq what are they called iraqis iraqine iraqine people uh that they have like four eyelids or something like that there would be some sort of that they're camel people now yeah like this something has happened to them over time to where they don't cry or they sweat less or something, but it's just like they're a withered husk of people who steal water in the form of dew and drink each other's blood and wear these suits and stuff. Yeah. And they technically don't really drink one another's blood, right? right. No, like they no. refine the water right. sure. from your, from your corpse. Right. Um, but I think it is striking that blood and uh, water are analogous to one another. Like a person's blood is their water. And it makes me think of water on a planet as being the blood of that planet. Yeah. Right. And the blood of uh, Arrakis is uh, deep within potentially or, or, or rare and hard to find. Right. Yeah. So what if we do a very, very quick synopsis of what happens here? Hit it, John. Uh, the Atreides are stationed at Arrakis, and this makes the Harkonnens very upset. So the Harkonnens set into place a trap for the Atreides involving Dr. Yu, who is convinced to betray the family to free his wife, who's captured by the Harkonnens. And Duke Leto is captured and ultimately dies. But Paul and Jessica escape from their captivity. And Paul's eugenics-based genetic lineage is awoken due to exposure to the spice. And he transcends humanity, seemingly, by the end of this book. So his dad dies and he becomes Zeubaminch. Is that fair to say? I think it's right on. Yeah, that's pretty good. And somehow it took 236 pages to get there. (laughs) 
Did it seem long to you? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I would say so. That would be one of my impressions. Okay. A critique. I don't know if a critique is... I, it's my impression. I'm okay. not going to knock it. I'm just saying it was a lot. It, it, took for, a, it took a while to get there. I felt like not a lot... Ha- it was a lot of just like... And this is this crazy thing about this thing. And that's this crazy thing about that thing. And look at this conservatory. Like, we could have talked for three hours about the things that we read. Sure. Plot-wise, it's very basic. They move. The dad dies. Paul becomes a Superman. Yeah. Right? I think so. I think a lot of this is window dressing. But I think that it serves to build the, the larger world. Sure. Of, of this universe and how the, the various factions interact with one another, their um, impressions of one another, like where they stand amongst one another and uh, how things kind of are moving before Paul gets to Dune and his terrible purpose right. is kicked into motion. Right. And, and that is the thing that I like about the first part of this book is that Paul I mean, let's be real here. Paul is a Mary Sue character. He's got a lot of power. What are your thoughts, Luke? Uh, I don't envy Paul. I, so I don't envy I would... Paul either. But my, my point, I think, is that Paul... We don't see Paul struggle for the power that he ultimately wields by the end of this book. Bad things happen to Paul. Yeah, I guess why don't you envy him? I mean, I, the way that he describes his transcendent power seems horrible. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. I mean, that like, who wants to be God, right? Like, you don't necessarily want that weight. The way that it sort of comes across, it seems like. Sure. Uh, uh, it is very pointy at that point where he, like, realizes he's more powerful than his mom, who has always been a space witch to him. Right. And his dad's dead. I can, I can kind of see. I mean, he can't grieve, right? Like his, his Mintat training, which is the source of his, his power, uh, keeps him from grieving in the last, like, 10 or like 10 to 20% of, of book one. He just can't feel anything because he's processing like the sleeper has been awakened he's he's just data is just flowing into him like these impressions are flowing into him and he knows he should be feeling something but yet it's just not there mm-hmm. and there's there's that moment where it happens like right as the you know the the ultimate end to book one uh but he's he's more than human right right he's, he's next he's next level and that's not necessarily something that he his human emotional mind is is prepared to deal with so i guess when you said you didn't envy him i was intrigued i was intrigued by that because you had mentioned when we started this this season that this is one of your favorite books this clearly has struck a chord with you based just on this description that you shared with us Mm -hmm. so like what is it that taps into you about paul that makes you not envy him. Like, what is it? It seems like it just really resonates in your core. This it's, this character. Yeah, I mean, it's the whole like, uh, mm, like heavy as the crown kind of mentality. Like, okay, like he didn't ask for this. 
it was like foisted upon him. Sure. Like nobody chooses their uh their lineage and for better or worse nobody chooses their DNA. Uh and lineage is different than DNA. Like 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 he he didn't choose his his placement within like House Atreides or and it's revealed at the end of book one, House Harkonnen. Like the right. fact that he is the thing that he despises, I think that's like the the next level, like like the the, the cherry on top. Chef's kiss. Yes, like that is that's just beautiful. Like the fact that that extra level of emotional resonance comes into things. Like he is the things that he hates. He's the things that he can't understand. I mean, so many so many things. Like this is like ultimate like ultimate emo type stuff but it's not treated in a in a grim or emo or fashion like it's very i I love the way that herbert sort of puts things on the page and it keeps it it keeps it from from being too emotive like it's very uh literary just i don't know for lack of a better better sort of term so do you mean that like part of what resonates with you is escaping your own lineage like he- oh, I mean, I think that's part of it. Like, okay. so Paul becomes like from this point forward in the story, he's untethered. He says, right. you know, like his mom, who was once his better. Like, I love the idea of like the child surpassing the the parent. I think that's I think that's awesome. I love the idea of the 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 child like passing up mommy and daddy and saying, "Nah, I'm I'm driving this seat." Like you you don't even know what you're in for. Like we're it's about to be jihad everywhere. Like that's what's going to play out over the next <laughs> the next couple books. It's about to go bonkers. Right. And he is Messiah. So I love the idea of that like rock and roll like I'm in control. I do what I want sort of mentality. I love the scariness of that. Uh I don't, I love how it gets at the mommy and daddy issues and I mm-hmm. love how it gets at the inevitability and the the existential like like on way the human condition like for better or worse Paul's no longer human he's right he's more i guess that i'm intrigued by this because usually the moment where a character that is coming untethered from mom and dad and surpasses the former master etc like that's a moment of celebration but as you've pointed out this is kind of a moment of defeat for him like he so it's I mean I I I've only read the first book of Doom but I know what the overall trajectory is. It's it's both like what's the what's the Tolkien the the term for the elves. No, for like the <laughs> U catastrophe. Yes, like it, it, this is not a U catastrophe. Like it seems as such, but this is a this is a game changer. But not necessarily for the better. It's just right. a, it's just a game changer. Right. I guess that's what I'm interested by what you're saying is he's becoming better than his parents. And usually, I would argue in fiction, that's held up as like, ta-da, that's the end. Congratulations, you've done it. You are better than your folks. But this is bad, almost. It's not yeah. bad, but like, I mean, it's I don't, ruined I don't think his it, life. I don't think it's always good. I mean, you can look at... Ending up like like and I'm not trying to confound like Frank Herbert's Doom with like rock and roll and like hippies. Like they're inextricably linked with right. a lot of the the things, but like 
a rock and roll lifestyle is uh for better or worse a freer lifestyle but it's not necessarily better and oftentimes you crash and burn right before <laughs> before that story ends like if you if you go long enough like like and you don't even have to go that far you're not even gonna you're gonna you're gonna what is it like what does neil young say like you're gonna you're gonna burn out you're not gonna turn to like right. rust man like nobody's right. gonna rust out we're gonna we're gonna just burn out dude john like, bought a guitar like, <laughs> like that's the way that like this story is a is a fiery train wreck it's it is a very uh noir indication of how the story is going like with with paul's intuitions and his vision like as the quisach heterac or whatever it is beyond that like he can see all possible paths and they they're fire like if he goes the way that that he uh would opt to go it's gonna be fire and genocide and he's got to live with that. Like he's the he's the the guy that's driving that car. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I like I like the the doom overtones, but I also think that the as you say his surpassing of his mother to me that felt unearned at this point. It, it's just a thing that happened. And I, I remarked to John on the way over here, like this story read to me. Uh, in in a very pulpy tradition, and and rightfully so because it comes from the pulps. Uh, it, it seemed to me that the plot was a nail that Frank Herbert was pounding into the wood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that it's necessarily bad. I I think that I wish that I had read this when I was younger. I think that taps into the things that uh, John W. Campbell expressed like in that the, the first episode where we were talking about him having like reticence to to Herbert's writing to say dude you just you just handed this superman all of these powers like mm-hmm. how are you going to write what happens next like <laughs> I keep I've said this multiple times this episode with great power comes great great responsibility like how are you going to deal with that spider-man-y kind of kind of theme like spider-man's not like all powerful spider-man's just like a kid that's got some powers but he's not god and like paul as a as a teen is is omniscient like and he's 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 awake he doesn't even know what's inside him but he has uh like his he he's on the exponential growth curve of power the way it's described like all of the final portion of the of the book or of book one like the first third of the book plays out in the span of like a night or two in a still tent right like it's him uh is that right or am i yes yeah, okay yeah, okay okay because right. okay. i because i've read like uh, 20 or 30 pages into book three or book two and i can't so so he's like having those interactions with his mom right and like breathing in spice yeah and he's just he's he's leveling up he's leveling up He's leveling up. It's almost as and, – and this gets it like – I don't know, like, you know, daddy issues, mommy issues. Like, the dude's dad just died and that's the breaking point, right? He's he's been given the signet ring and he's he's at the breaking point and he's a, a supercomputer and he's on these drugs that are awakening, awakening synapses. Like, he's dealing with 
the loss of his parent, like of a parent. He's got another parent who's been like using him and a bit manipulating him. Like there's so many layers to the, the, the mommy and daddy issues on top of like, yeah, the drugs like totally wake you up, bro. Right. Like <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's not <laughs> any one thing. Right. Yeah. The dad part is interesting to me too, because I feel like we get these bits where they move in and some of the first things they unpack is Leto's dead dad's, picture and the anim- the bull that killed him right so like, so so Lita, he's got some he's got some daddy issues of his own right, right yeah and then when paul awakens it's in conjunction with his dad's death i agree that it's weird how much more powerful he becomes than his mom i think there's also a lot to mine for us over the course of this season about the fact that the Benny jesuits are a monastic order of women who have been secretly planning for a male Superman for thousands of years, seemingly Uh, like there's a lot to parse through there, but it seems like the epoch event for him is his dad dies. Right. And it's all the things Uh, it's it's like the perfect storm, the combination of storm of that emotional tragedy, plus the drug, the the spice that awakens various synapses and allows you to see the past and the present and the future at the same time. It's all of these things happening right. at just the right moment. Right. I think it's beautiful on the level of, you know, any given human being on the planet, you know, and it is is absolutely unique from from any other human being on the planet. Like it's it's it gets at that like like we are all uh, uh, snowflakes that are uh, a consequence of our very specific uh, phenotype and genotype, like all interacting with one another, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like whenever Paul makes the comments to his mom, like I'm not the Quisach Hatterack, I'm, I'm something else. Like you, you don't even know. It's a consequence of a phenotype, right? Like his, his genotype is like what he was engineered towards, but he has like all of these extra levels, like the Benny Jesuit, what were not thinking about the spice and they were not thinking about necessarily all of the other things. Like they weren't thinking about Fremen jihad. Like, <laughs> so, right. so, so he like, here's the thing. And we, we kind of glanced over this before, but this is like one of the things that I think is really cool within like the, the overall world setting. So the Fremen, and you made the remark, John, like that's a derivation, maybe a free men, right? Like they are potentially like in terms of their mythology from what, like the planet is, uh, uh, Salusa Secunda is like the term that's referred to, which is also like the location that the Sajukar are from. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Like, and that's a, a hell planet in and of itself. And so they are, they're, they're, they're like, you know, they're the Israelites, right? Like the Fremen are, are Israel. <laughs> like they've, they've, they've come to this location and they've like the same thing that hardens the Sarjikar, uh, uh, super police of the emperor are the things that harden the Fremen. And like that, that mythology, that sort of like, uh, barbarian mythology that flavors uh, the Fremen 
it strikes me, isn't something that was predicted by the Bene Jesuit. Like, they just throw that, what is it, like, their, their missionaria protectiva. Like, they have this, like, we just seed out a lot of, like, random, like, witchy nun stuff all across the right. world. Right, yeah. <laughs> so we, like, <laughs> we send missionaries to different planets and, and uh, seed them with our mythos. And outside of uh, the Atreides going to Arrakis with the native Arakeen people being these Israelites that have this like old school barbarian Israelite streak through them, we wouldn't get a disruption of the entire universe that's about to happen. Right. Like all of this stuff wasn't for all of the intentions, all of the eugenics and all of the, the, the processes of the, the Bene Jesuit, like they, they have no, uh, like appreciation for the hell that they're about to like drop onto the entire world. Yeah, like the the entire sort of like humankind. I guess that would be the better way to say it across worlds. So there's a scene early in the book where Jessica, uh, the the Atreides family has ar- arrived on Dune, and Jessica meet meets a character, a Fremen character named Mapes. And Mapes and Jessica kind of connect over Jessica's knowledge of Bene Gesserit lore, uh, which has also been spread on the planet Arrakis by a Bene Gesserit millennia ago, potentially. Uh, We get some cool lore here. One of the cooler aspects of this is this notion of the Chris knife. John, do you remember the Chris knife? I do remember the Chris knife. It can't leave the planet. No, it can't leave the planet. It's if made you, of a tooth. It's made of a, a sandworm tooth. Right. And if you draw it, you can't sheath it unless you draw blood. Demands moisture. Yeah. Isn't that cool? It is cool. Yeah, I think it's really cool. Um, the other thing that I think is cool about this section is it gets us a glimpse of uh, the interface between a civilized character in Jessica and uh, a, a barbaric quote quote character in Mapes. What do you guys make of that? Like, let's let's take our Howardian lens and look through it and consider the first book in the novel Dune under that lens. Well, Mapes is very dignified, right? Like, she doesn't show up and just start kowtowing to folks. I mean, she does, but there's also kind of an edge to it. Especially when Paul orders her to do something, uh, and she says something like, "By your, by your command." Am I remembering that correctly? Um, and kind of like implies, like you know, you think you're so smart and bossy. Uh, I, I think she's got an edge to her that is barbaric, but also, if we're hitting on the Howardian theme, like she has a civilized nature to her. She follows her own rules and her own ethos. Sure. Yeah. What are your thoughts, Luke? How, how do you how do you uh how do you consider the Howardian trope of civilization and barbarism in the the novel Dune? So there's a couple there's a couple levels that I think that it can be talked about uh and and so like the the the, the civilized or or I don't know, gentrify is not the right word, but basically like 
the moral barbarian level that we're getting at here is is one thing. Another thing, though, that I think about is, and, and Josh, you and I were talking off mic about this previously, but like the uh, the human drive for like colonization and civilization mm-hmm. is at odds with the barbaric nature. So like one of the things, like another thing that I, that I really like that sort of unfolds like right at the end of book one is the revelation that the Fremen aren't quite so barbaric as they seem because somehow it seems like they've been paying off the spacing guild to keep satellites from basically anything except the polar region of Arrakis. Like, the entire big belt of the middle of the of the planet is a big, like, here be, here be sandworms mm. kind of statement on the map. <laughs> because nobody's looking. Uh, but it's, it's not... It's not as a, a consequence of, like, limited resources or limited technology. It's because the Fremen are paying them off. The Fremen are operating as, like, an uber-civilized faction in a lot of ways. Mm. And... The the Fremen are pushing towards an exploitative end result for Arrakis. Like, they want to make Arrakis more hospitable for themselves, which is at odds with their, their nature. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets at themes of, like, any number of, of native peoples across the planet Earth that are... Uh, losing their culture while they are making short-term income. Mm-hmm. I think it gets at those themes. I think that that's what Herbert was like mining into when he wrote this. I think in a Howardian lens, it's super interesting to think about the fact that that there are there is no such thing. This is like a John Muir. Like, like, like John Muir, you know, would talk who, who about is, the noble is, savage, right? Like that was a, you know, in terms of conservation ethics, like there's this, this mindset of like all savages were noble and they didn't have any sort of impact mm-hmm. on their native soils beyond like the lightest step of their footprint. Like there's right. a, there's a John no Muir waste. thing. No, yeah. yeah. Like my, so, like in Combio, I have like this little like snippet of a John Muir uh, uh, a bit of writing. And it, it gets at like, you know, the Indian uh, 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 nations of California or the native peoples of California were, you know, just stepping across the land and having the, the, the lightest of an ecological footprint. But that's not true, right? Like, right. like the, the concept of a noble savage, sav- uh, savage, and this, so this is what I, what I say in, in Combio, like the earliest perceptions of conservation as an ethic was, was reductionist and, uh, you know, uh, utilitarian in its scope. And like, like the Fremen are not to be reduced to the perspective of a noble savage. Like they have a counter yeah. countering uh, uh, like objectives here. Um, the interesting thing to me here is that in the struggle against the Harkonnens, the climate of Dune is a sword and shield that the, the Fremen can wield against the Harkonnens because they're adapted to it. Now that adaptation is technological and not biological, but, 
so you know so what maybe, maybe it's also behavioral um but they have it and the harkonnens don't really if you take that advantage away by making the planet hospitable and adding water then you put yourself on uh, or put yourself at a disadvantage relative to your enemies the other thing is the the worms produce spice that is necessary for interstellar travel and the worms need this soft sand deep desert environment right you get rid of the desert what happens to the worms what happens to the galactic infrastructure but they don't really care about that right like they want to live on a planet where they can thrive like they're victims of this capitalistic takeover ah. of the world. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I, would, I would agree. Yeah. I, they're not natives. They're humans. They're, would you say aboriginal? Maybe. maybe. Yeah, maybe. I, at, what even, po- at what point, how long do you have to live in a place? Well, they're at minimum like original colonists, I guess I would I say. I guess, yeah. yeah. And like they're dealing with the after effects of what they've done. So I don't think that they care so much about if they – blow up the spice trade as much as we're going to do what we need to do to make a hospitable world where we can get water flesh ourselves. Yeah. Uh, or I think that's where they want to head based just on what I'm seeing here in this first book. Um, I don't know that. Yeah. That's not their priority is to, to become the rich people. They, they're not the Harkonnens and they seem to be open to any allegiance that will let them kick the Harkonnens out thereby like you were saying oh if you take and turn the planet into a water planet you lose your desert advantage the desert power that they talk about in house atreides right i think that they want to get rid of the harkonnens first and then then they can lose their desert power and not suffer any ill consequences is that fair to say i think so so like the harkonnens are gone they seem to deal fairly with the atreides then they can go from there I don't know. Yeah. It, I, I mean, we've had this conversation in regard to uh, the civilized versus barbaric nature of Conan, right? right? Like in 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 the Howard Conan stories, Conan, um, he uses, he plays people off one another to suit his own ends. Right. And we've seen that. Right. Um. And we've debated whether that is a civilized thing or a barbaric thing. Or right? is it just like, a smart thing? Or is it a smart thing? Like, right. d- does it defy Like, these people are really only barbaric in their customs compared to normal Imperium customs. Like, they wear a still suit that recycles their feces into water. And, yuck, that's gross, according to our protocols. Um, but they're smart. They're adaptive. They possess the wherewithal to have their own agency so is it fair to call them barbarians uh well i or is it fair to call them howardian barbarians howardian barbarians yeah barbaric in the sense that uh it's clear that the harkonnens and the atreides are quote quote civilized howardian civilized even right like they are constantly plotting against one another and ultimately will lead to one another's downfall. They use the guilt, the craft and the lie. Exactly. Yeah. How do you want to finish this up? What do you want to talk about, dude? Yeah. What do you want to talk about? 
Uh, like right now or in the future? Like, in like, the, like we're, we, we, we've got to wrap this episode up in the next couple minutes. For sure. Uh, but like going from here, is there uh, an un, an unresolved topic as of yet within book one that you need to, that you feel like the, that we need to talk about something that we didn't like get into. Oh, something I'm interested in talking about more in the future is definitely the Benny Jesuits. Like I want to talk more about this monastic order. I want to talk about Benedictines and Jesuits in our world and talk about like what that means possibly for this namesake type organization. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of data to mine there, especially to talk about, this weird gender thing of a female order that has spent thousands of years breeding a male Superman. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in talking more about that in the future. So I don't know where that folds into. Why, why not a lady superwoman? Yeah, I guess that, that's the big question to me is if they are able to breed women essentially or to train women to be so powerful that they can stop men in their tracks that they can dictate the courses of history almost, it seems like, in this future. Why are they building towards this Heiswatch? Heiswatch. Uh I think that's going to be some, some gold to unearth for us. Yeah, I, I, I love that topic. Like the, the relative power... Or, or impotence of women within the story. Right. So Princess Irulan is someone that gets quoted quite yeah. a bit within the, the front end of uh, the entirety of the, the novel yeah. structure. Almost every cool. little Howard bit at the top, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That, that'll that come clear. There's also references to St. Aaliyah of the Knife, right? Right. Finally, really, like... His sister. Like, yep, his sister. He's going to have a sister. Uh and I guess like Jessica, like, and then there's there's one other woman who's not yet been revealed within the story, but is he gonna get a girlfriend? He's gonna he's gonna get a girlfriend. So, uh, oh there's, yeah, yeah. there's 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 she's not been revealed. There's multiple there's multiple women, and they all have varying degrees of power. Yet, like like. I use the term impotence, which is something you would normally ascribe to like masculine figures, but there, there, there is some level of impotence with what they can do, right? Like Lady yeah. Jessica at this point is uh, dumbfounded with the power. Like I think it's funny to contrast like the final revelations of Book One between Paul and her with like the the shit she's throwing down with Thufer. Like earlier, where she's like, yeah. like I've got, I've got to like demonstrate my power. I'm about to, I got to hold off. I'm going to do this thing. I got to hold off. I'm going to do this thing. And then she uses the voice, and she ultimately seats him, and it's unsettling. Like, like Paul is just talking. Like he's not even like exercising superpowers. He's just exercising like, this is me every day at this point. Like as of like. This morning when I woke up, this is, this is this is how I roll now. Like, I can't help it. <laughs> I think what's fascinating about her, though, is like you talk about impotence, but she essentially decided yep, this right. path. Like, she could have had a girl mm-hmm. like she was supposed to, yep. but told her uterus and everything. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's yeah. boy time. And, mm-hmm. and sets this all in motion. All so, in the name of love. Right. Like, she has a lot of power. 
in this story, even though at this point, at the end of this chapter, this book, she has been cut off at the knees. I want to throw the idea of direct versus indirect power to you guys. Okay. Two things. One, do you think Lady Jessica has direct power over the narrative or indirect power over the narrative? And two, does Paul actually have any power at this point over the narrative that we've seen? Like to, to my mind, he is merely relaying the things that he has seen. Right. And of the things that he's seen, the only palatable direction that he can see is this one that's going to result in fire and blood across the galaxy. She's the conductor. I mean, like she is dictated what's gone on so far. What do you think? I, I mean, I think, I think that's absolutely true. Like up until the final scene of Paul and Jessica within the still tent, uh, Jessica has had the story stick in her hands, but at this point, for better or worse, <laughs> like Paul has taken it away and said, "This is now my story." Like it's uh, <laughs> talking about ecology. Like you have both like passenger and driver models for talking about like plant succession as mm-hmm. a as a thing. Like it gets at the role of. Jessica in that passenger seat or driver's seat at this point, I think she shifted over to being in the passenger seat. I, I think that's cool. I, I mean, that's, that's something I would love. Like we're going to talk about it. Like it's, it's going to come up, uh, multiple, multiple times from right. here on out. Yeah. She loses this power at this point. But, but I mean, more broadly, like women, right. Like air, air quotes, like, like, like as a, as a, as a group, right. You kind of have this distinction between, Paul versus the the women in his life. It's something that that comes up. Yeah, it's cool. So, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Let's have a feminism episode. <laughs> I'm, I'm in, dude. Okay. I'm all, <laughs> so one three of the, dudes talk about feminism. Yeah. <laughs> one other thing that I'm interested in talking about is the uh like like Herbert's Ubermensch philosophy. Uh, it's not a philosophy, but his, his Ubermensch story, that's the better thing. Like his narrative that he's telling here in relation to say, uh, Howard's Superman Ubermensch archetype and, uh, uh, like an Anne Randian sort of, uh, perspective on movers and shakers of the world and juxtaposing like what it means to be uh, human versus animal, and how that relates to like fandom. Like that's that's I think to me that that's the thing that I'm most interested in like mining. I think that's the that's the deep seated like Howardian narrative, like that in the Fremen. Uh, uh, multiple like contrasting viewpoints that they're sort of reconciling. I think those are the cool Howard Elliot elements that I was most excited to talk about. Yeah. I, I think it's about inf- influence over other people versus influence over yourself. 
how much agency do you have versus how much control do you have over the agency of other people? I wonder if, if that's kind of uh, a theme that might rear its head again. So Paul is all powerful, but he got cornered into being all powerful. He got cornered into it, but also how all powerful is he? If he can uh, see everything, but he can't he, like make people do stuff. He can decide, but and and he sees how things will go. But you know that's a broad kind of coarse, you know, grainy level resolution. Right. How much power does he have over individuals? Can he eliminate free will? Right. We're gonna have to read more. We'll have to read more. Do you guys have any other thoughts? About the first book of Dune, which was titled Book One, Dune. I had one. Okay. Uh, I guess I wanted to maybe share real quickly. Is drop it on us. Uh, one of my favorite things. If we're if we do that still, uh, uh, yeah, we uh, do that. Doctor Yu. I know he's the traitor and he's the bad guy in this whole thing. Yeah, I thought that was very deliciously written in this whole thing. Like his anguish over being a traitor. And why and like how they counteracted his programming because he's kind of he's built to be a doctor. Right? Yeah, it's cool to me like that science fictional element of having a hardwired Hippocratic oath. Yes, in a, yeah, in yeah, a yeah, doctor's yeah. head. Like that is that is that's a science fiction thing. Like just take that and run with it. What does that mean? Like. Your program, and that's like how the world works, and what does it? What would it take to break that programming? I think <laughs> this is me getting all like romantic and sappy too. But Dune is ultimately a story about like like love and relationships. Okay, uh, like with with you see that here, he like with this, but with uh, Jessica and Leto, like the the sacrifices that you make for love. Maybe the theme is like sacrifices and love, right? Like the things that you did for 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 his wife and that he that he knew that she had already gone through the things that that Lido put Jessica through and I think it's I think it's beautiful. I th- I really do think that like that that through line is another is an that's another cool major theme to the book. That makes it more personal beyond just saying like big planets and, and houses and and big drama, it makes it very like intimate too. I I like the story for the various scales <clears throat> scales that at which it operates. It operates at the very personal. So thinking about Paul and his relationship with uh, his father mm-hmm. and his mother, uh, Paul and his. Uh, reaction to the uh, assassination droid, which is something we didn't talk about, but this this drone that someone is controlling that has uh, uh, the ability to does it have a a las gun? Have we talked about the lasers in this? Uh, it it is it flies out of some some nook in his room and is trying to kill him in the middle of the night. Uh, so there are very intimate scenes but then there are very coarse scenes like the the Harkonnen invasion of Arrakis mm. this is a very you know uh who knows the number of casualties right that occur as a result of this this incursion right 
and and so those two types of scenes counterbalance with one another. So you you get this grander scale of the story, and then this very intimate scale of the story, and and that's something that I really like. Yeah, epic, which is a contrast to a lot of sword and sorcery tropes, like that sort of bigger scale. It's not it's not absent, but it that I think. That, that sort of epic scale that you would see within like an epic fantasy is a, a, a contrast that we might be able to come back to too. Sure. But I would, I would posit that there are swords, right, John? Yep. There's sorcery. Mm-hmm. Do you need sword and sorcery? Hot take. Hot sure. take. Yeah, Hot sure. take alert. Hot take. All right, so we haven't we haven't decided whether we're going to jump right into book two, or if we're going to have a uh, a second conversation about a theme. Uh, I think let's let's go to book two. What do you think? Yeah. All right. Do you, do you have a theme in mind? Luke? No, I don't. I mean, okay. we we kind of went around and said like these are the things we want to talk about, but yeah. maybe we'll just keep them in head. Uh, like we'll we'll keep them in our head. So yeah, let's jump into book two. So the next stop on the road to Arrakis will be a discussion of the middle third of the book. Uh, is it Muad'Dib? Muad'Dib. Uh, so we'll talk about the little mouse out in the desert, the North star, the, uh, the unifying strength of the Fremen peoples, Usul, as he might be termed by one specific person. Uh, we'll talk about what Paul does once he, gathers the forces like gathers his desert power so so we'll talk about that and we'll take stock again and see what we need to talk about after that after that book yeah. so what else josh where can people find us what can we do like how can people get onto our our twitter feeds what's the story there here's the thing you're probably wondering, hey, what happened to the Chromecast that used to talk about Robert E. Howard's story specifically? We're still here. We're talking about a science fiction classic through the lens of Robert E. Howard. And you can find us on the web at thechromecast.blogspot.com. That's the same place we've always been at for six years. We're on Twitter at the Chromecast. We tweet there randomly. <laughs> that's the only place we tweet, right, John? It's, yep, yep. Exclusively. The, yep. the exclusive Twitter platform of the Chromecast. <laughs> We're on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash the Chromecast. And you can email us, the Chromecast at gmail.com. We're interested in your thoughts. We're on Instagram at the Chromecast. And you can call us and leave a voicemail. That's 859-429-CROM. That's us. That's all of our various social platforms. Or tip a note to a sandworm, slap it on the hind end, send it our way. <laughs> That's right. We didn't talk about the scale of the sandworms. I mean, we got plenty of time. Okay. Their, the mouths, their mouths have a, a diameter, or no, a, yeah, a diameter of 80 meters. I don't know about that. 80 meters. That's, that's a made-up system I of measurement. I can't even fathom. You can't even fathom the, the, the scale of this. This is Lovecraftian in its scale. My sandworms are 80 hogsheads to the width. <laughs> and that's the way <laughs> I Your like sandworms it. are a different breed entirely. <laughs> but anyway, you can find us on the web at thecromcast.blogspot.com. And we will see you a little bit further down the road to Arrakis. Arrakis.
Captain Planet. He's our, our hero. Gonna, gonna bring pollution down to zero. Turn? Z- I don't know. Bring pollution. Bring pollution down to zero. <laughs> <laughs>